Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. Now, I am fascinated by the role that deception plays in the workplace. Now, you might think, well, how does that work, Phil, then? How does um, how does emotion and deception go together? Well, for me, they go together really closely um, because how we feel often affects how honest we may be. And that could range from exaggeration or, or minimization in job interviews or, or on a CV, where we either want to make ourselves look really good or we want to minimize our mistakes. Or it could be about corporate frauds, you know, sort of big, big ticket corporate fraud stuff. Um, or it could be day-to-day lies and omissions as well. And as my guest today will tell you, there is no Pinocchio's nose. So there is no single indicator of deceit. So when it comes to detecting deception, if we can find strategies that make life easier for truth tellers, that make life harder for liars and help anybody trying to ascertain truth from deception to differentiate between the two, then I am really interested um, in that. Now, my guest today um, has recently successfully defended her Viva. I'm not sure if it's Viva or Viva. I'll ask her that in a minute. I think it's Viva. But anyway, um, and is embarking on a new role um, in a new place. And I'm really, really grateful that she's given up her time to join me uh, on the podcast today. So let's get our guest on the air. Welcome to the podcast, Cody Porter. Hi, Cody. Hi, Phil. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for the invite. Thank you for uh, bringing me along today. Oh, you're welcome. And is it Viva or Viva? I think it's Viva. Yeah. Is it Viva? Yeah, it is. I think it's Viva. Okay, okay, good. That's right then. Um, and as usual for this podcast then, we will open with an unexpected yet innocuous question. Uh, so, Cody, what is your favourite season of the year? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's a hard question. Narrowing them down. Oh, I mean... British weather, I think, is very much, you know, you've either got that summer and you've got a little bit of heat or you go straight into the cold. At the Mm. minute, I'm going to go with the cold season. I'm quite looking forward to wrapping up in my coats, getting nice scarves, boots, jeans. I'm ready for winter, I think. You ready for winter? I am indeed. It's It's been a nice summer. We've had a little bit of heat, but it's now time for the winter and the coats, the scarves, everything nice to come out. So is the heating on at home yet for you? No, not yet. Yeah, probably in the next week or so. Uh, I'm based in Portsmouth at the moment and it's been quite sunny. It's been quite warm. We've been quite blessed with the weather. Well, so my wife's been saying it's September now, um, Phil, we can put the heating on. I'm like, no, we can't. So uh, earlier on this week, I was in my office all day and I came out for lunch and she'd lit the fire. And I was like, all oh, right, I see. <laughs> autumn, ha- autumn has begun because the fire's been lit. Um so yeah, uh, you know, she's very much a, a winter. She loves that snuggling, you know, kind of being wrapped up in a blanket in front of the fire, nice glass of Bailey's or a glass of mulled wine or um, the smell of a Sunday roast cooking in uh, in the oven, um, stuff like that. Yeah, she's a, a big fan, a big fan of the winter and the cold. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's really nothing better than a nice walk with a warm, hot chocolate, you know, your gloves on, your hat, your, your scarf. It can be wonderful. I imagine, though, it must make life a bit harder if you're doing some kind of behaviour analysis in the winter because there's so many layers on with hats and scarves and uh, and things like that. It might make it a bit harder if you're trying to analyse somebody's behaviour with all of their layers, (laughs) with all of their layers on top. I think the trick there is to make sure you have a nice warm office. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. Nice, good central heating. Uh, All right. Okay. so, well, thank you very much. Um, And yeah, I'm 
Uh, oh yeah, winter. I, I see. I'd go for. I think summer's mine. But then that's a lot of that's to do with the fact that I love ice cream. Um, I'm a huge fan of ice cream, especially like a Mr. Whippy 99, a twin one of those with two <laughs> flakes in. I'm going to be yeah. completely honest with you. I change. I mean, when it's summer, I'm looking forward to winter. And when it's winter, I'm looking forward to summer. Forward to summer. Ah, okay. So it's about what you. It's about looking forward to what you haven't necessarily got there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So our, our focus for today then um, is around interview techniques. Um, and because your research is around one type of methodology. Um, that's right, isn't that's it? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if we're in my introduction, I talked about um, lies and truth and deception and so on. So I wondered if it might be helpful to start with kind of some working definitions that we might then take through to shape the conversation that follows. So um what would be your working definitions of uh, truth and or deception then? Uh, so starting off with deception, I think mm. for me, the best definition to go for is uh, very much a definition that uh, deception is a successful or unsuccessful, deliberate attempt without forewarning to create in another a belief that the communicator considers to be untrue. Now, I'm going to pick that apart, uh, and you can tell I've just okay. had my PhD Fiverr recently because <laughs> yeah. I've got all of these uh, quotes and things just stuck in my mind. Hopefully they stay there. Uh, but the key with this definition is it's very much successful or unsuccessful. It doesn't need to have, you don't need to have successfully deceived someone in order for a lie to have taken place. The, mm-hmm. the point here is that there's a deliberate attempt. Now, without forewarning, so it just happens. And another key point to this is that the communicator, so the person doing the deception, considers what they're saying to be untrue. They have to know it's a deception in order for it to, you know, be classified as a lie. Now, let's sort of pick this apart a little bit more because I appreciate this uh, definition. It it is very wordy. It is probably the most Mm -hmm. useful one. But let's take uh, two people in a conversation, right? We've got one, we've got the deceiver. Uh, who attempts to lie about maybe a piece of work that they're doing or or a big pile of work that they're supposed to have finished. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not they've successfully convinced their boss uh, that they've done this work doesn't matter. The the point is that they've tried to deceive the person. They've tried to make their employer believe they've done this work when they know, in fact, they haven't. That would be my working definition, I guess, of a a lie. Mm. Now, I guess... Okay. You, you, you mentioned truth as well there. Yeah. So for me, a truth is very different. Now, a truth is very much when the person is providing uh, the most accurate information, you know, to the best of their, their knowledge. And that's really important, that bit about accuracy and that bit about, you know, to the best of their ability. Because memory is quite weak. Memory is quite unreliable. Memory fades over time. So what we want to see from our truth tellers or from people that we think are telling the truth, we want to see that they've recalled information that they believe to be true. Hmm. Hopefully that gives, that gives um, our listeners a good idea of, of what a deception and a truth is. I think so, yeah. And, and I think the, um, so the point you make about memory is really important. I remember on a 
previous episode of this podcast in a different context. We weren't talking about um, deception necessarily. So I had Nick, a, a gentleman called Nick Shackleton Jones, and a, another gentleman called Sukvinder Pabial on, and we were talking about memory and learning. And within that, we were talking about the fallibility of memory. We we referenced and, and talked about some of, some of Elizabeth Loftus's kind of seminal work in um, in both uh, recall and how recall can be influenced by the type of question that you asked. So I think within that, we talked about the. Um, the particular piece of research where the the I can't remember the word is it the verb I think it was the verb was changed from um, collided hit smashed and depending on on how what was asked then what word was used were well, then that would influence the um, the approximated speed that those remembering witnessing the accident would give um, so so yeah absolutely memory is a very fallible thing so I, I liked that aspect of the um uh, i can't remember he you didn't use the word sincere i would have used the word sincere but a, 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 a where they're trying to give you the accurate information absolutely it's interesting um that love the study that the, the car crash one because you know in all those contexts the person uh the participant is trying to be truthful it's just that they're influenced mm. by that word you know tapped is is very much implied and well there wasn't a lot of damage so you could see how people might think you know the speed was slower whereas crashed you know that that sounds like a powerful word that that quite um, likely impacts the participant thinking okay crash that must have been awful surely they must have been doing a higher speed than what i thought and and that's one of the problems mm. of memory it can be impacted uh, misinformation is a big problem it's so easy to introduce misinformation uh, to memory Yes, definitely, definitely, and and the um, in, in some of the work I do, I, I talk to my clients about how misremembering is different to deception. So you might have an, an experience where um, some people have, have seen something in the office or they've experienced something in the workplace, and then when they recall it, they recall it differently, and and so which one is closest to CCTV? Because therefore that one must be telling the truth. I'm like, well, maybe. But memory is, as you say, a, a tricky thing, influenced and and impacted by a number of different um, things, in, including an amalgamation of what may have happened in that episode and also what may normally happen in that particular situation or that particular scenario. You could actually end up having a, a mix of, of the memories coming together. So, yeah, no, I like that. Um, I like that definition. And then within deception, the... Um, I can't remember the word, the exact word you used. It was about um, without forewarning. Was that right? Yes, Did that's, you say without that's correct. Yeah, and and that's important again because um, you could argue that every time you go to the cinema, every time you go to the uh, to to the theatre, um, that person is is lying to you because they are um, they're whoever's acting the role or or acting in in whatever way um, isn't is telling you something that they don't believe that they know is is dishonest but because you know that that's what you're watching then it isn't deception because you know that that's what it is you know it's somebody acting on a stage or on a screen or um or whatever that might be and and, and i like the bit that then gets interesting like where's the middle ground in that um because when you when you walk into you know, i use the classic example of a car sales dealership when you walk into a car sales dealership and the the salesperson says to you this car is the, the cost of this car is X. Are they lying to you? Because everybody knows it isn't really X. Everyone knows it's up for 
um, it's up for debate and negotiation. So are they lying to you when they say the price is X or not? But that's just me having a bit of fun with the grey area in the middle. <laughs> that's a good, they're good examples. Um, going back to the acting one, I think uh, the key there is the communicator, the actor. You know, They're not deliberately trying to deceive as such. Uh, sure, they're acting, uh, they're playing a role. Um, but they're not trying to, there's no intention behind it, I think, to deceive the person. Um, or, or maybe not to deceive the person in the same way. And that was a key word that I forgot to mention. Intention's really important here. Mm. When we think of a, decep- a, a deception, a lie, uh, it's, you know, the intention to deceive is there. Uh, when we think of a truth, the intention to report the information to the best of your ability is there. Uh, when you said about the example of, you know, people... Uh, maybe given information from different perspectives. Again, it, it would be a truth in that scenario because the intention to be informative is there. They might not remember everything correctly. They might make mistakes. We all make mistakes, uh, but they're not mm. deliberately trying to deceive. Yeah, definitely. And and where would... So I, I mentioned about the grey area in, in the middle. Um. And, and is it intent then that might differentiate one from another? So um, I'm a big fan of, of linguistics. Um, and, uh, and and one of the areas that I enjoy playing with is, is this idea of implicature, where um, where people give themselves wriggle room, where they, they leave some some flexibility around how um, how an utterance can be interpreted. Um because they they might leave it where the way you're left with the impression that something so if i think about the the piece of work example that you were giving this big pile of work that um that needs to be done um and there are ways linguistically where where you could play with that and i think an example i've given um on the podcast before was where a member of a of a leadership team was asked a very direct and and a pointed question of will this project be delivered on time and on budget and the response was i'm on it um and, and the the ceo that asked the question was like great and then moved on afterwards i, I went to sat down with the ceo and said right you, you need to go and check in with that person um because they didn't say yes and they didn't say they didn't say yes they didn't say yeah they didn't say mm-hmm. they didn't say what they said was i'm on it which for me linguistically is interesting because it gives the impression of it does the impression management of yes it will be but it doesn't go so far as to saying yes it will be um and and where that wriggle room exists then um i'd be interested to go and find out what's what's going on so my advice to the ceo was i don't want you to go in and going oh are you lying to me i want you to go in and, and ask some questions to inquire and find out what's happening with the project is there anything going is there anything they need some help with are there any blockers are there any things that are getting in the way and then what we found out was yes there were other members of the team weren't um, working as, as quickly or as effectively on on uh, linked aspects so it was undermining the the potential success of the project um and, and so I then think, hmm, so were they deceiving, were they lying or not then? Because they, they were telling the truth in that they were on it, but they didn't give the um, the clarity in, in the answer that you might expect from a, a, a closed yes-no question in that way. So what would be your thoughts on that one? Sorry, I know that was a very long um, kind of context setting before I asked the question about what, where would you put that one? Is that in a grey area? Is that Would you put it as truth, as deception? How would that oh, work? that's a tricky one. I mean... 
it is definitely a grey area, but you know that's I'm on it. That's a clear deflection. They're not answering the question. And uh, thinking about how I analyse my uh, data, you know, if I was looking at that, I'd probably go, okay, well, you know, the, the core information, it's not really there. They haven't actually answered it. So they're, they're saying, yeah, I'm on it, but I've got no detail. I've got nothing to work with. So hmm. I would actually say that that's probably a lie. And going back to the definition of what deception is, I think there was a deliberate attempt there from that person to, to deceive the, the boss. Now, hmm. granted, it sounds like their intention was to deceive because other people were the problem. But still, it sounds like they knew what they were doing. Hmm. Okay. All right. Good. Because and I guess that you get the because um, there's the intention to deceive, and then there's the reasons behind it. So in that example, um, it it was uh, or my interpretation of the event was it was a it was a very face saving um, evasion. Uh, so it was about trying to save their own face, but also trying to save the face of um, of the other of their colleague who wasn't doing what they needed to do. Because if they'd have answered, no, it won't be because Phil isn't pulling his weight and and delivering what he needs to be delivering, then that had potential risks to embarrass Phil or to damage the relationship that Phil and this individual had, and um, and some things like that. So. Um, and I guess within those working definitions, we're not thinking about motives or, or reasons behind it, are we? We're, we're saying this is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're stripping away context, which is really important. But in that particular scenario, what I would say is it sounds like there was more than, you know, just one or two people in the room. And that could be quite mm. quite important because if you're trying to ask someone a question, you're trying to ascertain, you know, if they're telling the truth, if they're being deceptive, if they've maybe got something to hide. I think the way I would advise people is to approach it in the nicest possible setting. So instead of asking someone in, in the middle of a meeting room, I would privately ask them because you're more likely, I'd say, to get the truth. You've got that one-to-one. -one. There's no need, or rather there's maybe less need for that face-saving. It mm. might have been a different response. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Which I think links in very nicely with... Uh, your advice to go and speak to the person on their own and maybe approach it by asking, you know, is there anything you need help with? Is there anything uh, that's maybe stopping the work from getting done? It's a much more pleasant way to do things. And I think people respond better to pleasant reactions as opposed to, you know, interrogations. I don't believe you. I don't think you've done it. I think you're lying. Those responses are just going to get people's back up. They're not going to be forthcoming. They're not going to be helpful. And you might even scare them and make the situation worse. Yeah, and one of the things I, I I do a lot is try and keep the um and and this is something that uh, so I I I work with a company called the Emotional Intelligence Academy up in Manchester, and one of the things that we talk about in the in the work that we do as well is this idea of you want to keep um you want to keep people as calm as possible, because the the more agitated you make somebody, the harder it is for you to do your job, so the more um, suspicious you might. Um, if your suspicion index is high then that could work in your favor if somebody's lying because they might think oh my goodness this person is really suspicious i need to work really hard to lie but at the same time if you're telling the truth you're going to be thinking or you may be thinking oh my goodness this person is suspicious um i don't know if they're going to believe me what if they don't believe me and, and so the the anxiety of being disbelieved if you're a truth teller 
the anxiety will look the same if you if it's anxiety of being caught in a lie. So um, that anxiety will 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 display itself in the same way in in behaviours, whether you're the truth teller or the liar. And back to my introduction, for me, that then makes it harder. That makes my job harder if I'm trying to ascertain where the truth is. If I get if I get the person I'm talking to agitated, it makes my life harder. Um, and that's one of the things I really liked about your uh, about your technique. Um, and we'll come on to the we'll come on to the technique shortly. But that's one of the things I really liked about it when um, when I was reading about it and we spoke about it off air um, in our call uh, in our kind of pre recording call. Um, is the simplicity of it I think is and and the simplicity of it and the frame that you put around it I think is really helpful in making life easier for a truth teller and, and harder for a liar. Absolutely. I mean, you want to support truth tellers. Uh, you, you don't want to frighten them. You don't want to put them in a situation where, you know, nerves get the better off them. And we see this in our lab studies. You know, uh, we've got participants coming in. They're usually undergraduate students, many of which are studying psychology or related subjects. They're fully aware that they're in a lab situation and the study's not real. It's all for research. And yet, I've had uh, many participants come in and I've had them do a task, you know, they might steal a mobile phone or, or they might um, do a different task for the purpose of study, it's a lie. Now, yeah, they're yeah. not really stealing this phone and yet some of them will come back and they are so nervous about this. It's really interesting because afterwards in the debrief stage, you know, they'll, they'll often say, I knew it wasn't real but it felt real and I didn't know if the interviewer was going to believe me. And you really do see this nervous behaviour sometimes. It's in, yeah, definitely. It is interesting because if people are nervous in settings that are clearly not real, you know, they're, they're lab-based, they're, they're studies, they're not real-world scenarios, if they're nervous in that context, then certainly they're going to be nervous in real interview settings. Uh, and it doesn't just have to be a police suspect interview setting. You know, uh, think back to your last job interview or at least think back to your first or second job interview. You know, when you've got that nervous feeling, you're going in, you know the answers, you know you've got the skill set, um, but it becomes difficult to talk. Sometimes you trip over your words. Uh, a lot of the time, I found, uh, when I was first interviewing for jobs, I'd leave and I'd think, oh no, why didn't I say that? You know, yeah, I wish I'd said this. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you know you should have said it. You know it would have really, you know, helped get you that job, but you just didn't say it. Yeah, and I think your your examples there of things like uh, a job interview, whether it be in a new organisation or even a promotion. So I remember when I used when I was going for promotions within an organisation, I'd be equally nervous in, in, in that as I would be um, if I was applying for a role in a in a new organisation. Um, and similarly, I think in in terms of if there's workplace investigations, if there's allegations around inappropriate behaviour or conduct, um, uh, and uh, and I don't know, maybe I'm taking it too far, but I think even in regular monthly one-to-ones and uh, performance appraisals and performance reviews, um, those things matter because the ratings that you get or the outcomes of those discussions have stakes attached to them. They might be affecting things like pay rises. They might be affecting things like bonuses. They might be affecting things like career progression or promotions. Um, and so in my experience, deception happens there as well because there are stakes attached. I know, am I saying that every single person is lying in every um, performance appraisal or one-to-one conversation they have? No. But at the same time, um, 
there are things that we know are rewarded in the workplace. Things like um, working hard, being diligent, completing all of the tasks, um, not being sick too much. Um, some of these these aspects um, are deemed by workplaces to be important. And therefore, if something's deemed to be important, that brings stakes with it. And where there's stakes, there's potential for deception. Absolutely. Or am I being too dramatic? To no, no, I think it's a really good point. I mean... Thinking back to uh, before coming over to academia, I worked in the NHS and we would have supervision. Now, mm. that's very much clinical supervision, but even so, it's a situation where you're going in, uh, you're with someone who's, you know, uh, either your boss or who's more senior to you, and you're just discussing how things are going, how your work is, you know, how you're finding the job, um, how you're interacting with patients, and even that in itself, you know. It's, it's quite important if you're not interacting mm. effectively with patients, if you're not communicating well, you know, th- this could go against you, especially when it comes to things like going for promotion or going for new roles. And I think the advice that I would give the people there is to, to make sure that the people you're interviewing or you're supervising or, you know, whatever the situation, make sure they're comfortable. Don't just jump straight into the questioning, you know, try to build that rapport, try to have that social dynamic first. Ask them how life is outside of work. Ask them just general chit-chat questions and put people at ease. It's always easier to talk to someone that you know. Conversations flow naturally. You know the dynamic. You know when to speak. Um, When you're in a situation where you don't know the person very well, or if they're at a senior level and it's a work-based scenario, then putting them at ease is really important. Yeah, definitely. Um... So in terms of um, your thinking about some of those examples that I've talked about there then, so whether they be day-to-day conversations, performance conversations, um, could be kind of absence or sickness-based conversations, because uh, I'm just going to go on a slight detour, then I'll come back. So one of the things I get interested in, um, partly because of my interest in emotion, is the, um, the reasons that people give for being off and being unwell. Um, and 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 what's the kind of the the split between physical um, ailments and mental ailments? Because um, I, I get really interested in that. Because I think one of the ways I think anyway, this isn't backed up by any formal research that I've done. I think one of the ways that people deceive when it comes to absence-related things on a regular basis is by saying, "Oh, I had a dodgy tummy, or I had a headache, or a migraine," because those things are a easier to explain, b more readily accepted and see less potentially damaging to your reputation or your credibility than saying, oh, I was struggling with um, with some anxiety, I was really unhappy and just feeling really down or, or whatever those those things may be. Um, I'm not saying that's right that those things happen, by the way, but I, I, I think that they do. So anyway, sorry, I digressed. So No, it's, it's, um, it's a good point. I mean, there's such a, a stigma associated with mental health and even with some physical uh, health conditions. I mean, I'm sure most of us have been in situations where you might have been off for a certain reason, but it's too embarrassing. You don't want to tell the truth uh, because, you know, that's Mm. your employer. You'd rather say, actually, you know, it was a stomach bug rather than say the actual problem because you want to save face. You don't want to be embarrassed and you don't want your employer looking at you in that way. Sure, by definition, it would be a deception. It is a lie, but it's, I guess... A relatively harmless lie in that regard. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
oh, see, I was going to move on. I don't know if I can now. Um, and I guess, I, I guess it's in, for me, I get interested in then in terms of the that then links into the and the, oh, we're not talking about what we were going to talk about at all. But I'll make it a short digression then, um, because then for me it links into the culture of the organisation then, because it could be harmless in the short term, but it could be more damaging from a longer term perspective, because if I if the organisation or the manager doesn't understand the pressures or the situation or the context that the individual's in, and there needs to be respect of privacy and and sensitivity and so on. But the organisation might be able to be more helpful if they know what's really going on, or the organisation or the manager may be able to be, or maybe able to help in different ways, or help in other ways if they know what's going on versus what they think is going on. If that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. So, it, no, yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Uh, no, and I, I fully acknowledge that uh, you are right. If it's uh, a long-term potential problem that's going to keep coming up, then yeah, mm. it would be better for the employer to know because then it can put support mechanisms in place. I guess context is really important here, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a mug that um, a friend of mine gave me once which says context is everything on it because uh, because it is. <laughs> context is, is hugely important. Okay. All right. So for some of our listeners then whose day-to-day role may or tasks may not involve kind of the high stakes deception detection um, that we're talking about, how do you think or feel your research um, with the uh, AIM technique in particular might be helpful or useful for them? Okay, well, high stakes deception and, you know, studying this area is really important, particularly for things like forensic interviewing or, in other words, police suspect interviewing. Now, mm-hmm. what's nice is my research can be applied more generally. It's, I would say, uh, my research takes place in, in really relatively low-stakes situations. So uh, I'll have participants come into the lab, uh, they'll uh, take part in a task that will involve them lying. So they might steal an item or they might um, have to lie about their whereabouts. Now the worst thing mm-hmm. that's going to happen to them if they're not believed is you know, they might be asked to repeat their statement by another interviewer so it'll be a consequence to their time. Or they might be asked to provide a handwritten statement about what they've just said. Again, this is a consequence to their time. People don't like giving up their time, but it's a relatively low stick, as opposed to if we think of more uh, police-based interviewing. You've got someone in, you've accused them of a crime. Uh, This now becomes a really high stake. Worst case scenario, they could go to prison. So they're very, very different. The nice thing about my research is it's low stakes, so it can be transferred to a variety of different sectors. Now, one of those sectors, of course, would be the workplace. So thinking about the other part of your question, how could it be helpful? I think my research is helpful in the workplace because it really provides an opportunity to encourage truth tellers or you know people who are telling the truth to be more forthcoming with their information. In short, it really encourages people to talk more. And the more we can get people talking, the more we can find out about the problem or the issue. I think for me, that's, mm. that's the key part, encouraging people to say more truthful people to say more i should add yeah yeah. okay so should we run through the technique then that might be useful because we we've we've talked we i've referenced it as the aim technique and and you've mentioned it so i guess it might be useful then to to run through um what it is so what does the a and the i and the m stand for and then what's the technique that you would use so the the aim uh, stands for asymmetric information management aim technique for short 
and it's essentially a set of instructions that are designed to be used in an interview setting and the real purpose of them is to support truth tellers to say more while encouraging liars to withhold more information and this is really important because we want people to hear these instructions irrespective of if they're, they're telling the truth and lying and we want them to behave differently, right? We want them to adapt different information management strategies so that we can mm. detect their differences. Now, I'm just going to try and break it apart to give you an idea of where the aim came from. Uh, so, first of all, there's a thing in the lie detection uh, field called the illusion of transparency. And this is very much the idea that if I'm telling the truth, my credibility is self-evident. You'll, you'll know this. I'm telling the truth, so everyone will just know it. You know, truth tellers mm -hmm. have this belief in a just world. They think that because they're telling the truth, it's automatically known. Actually, that's not the case. We're not very good at detecting truths and lies. So the first set of instructions really are designed to target this. Um, and I've called this the illusion of transparency component. And what these first set of instructions do is they explain to uh, interviewees that, you know, during interviews, individuals frequently overestimate how easy it is for an analyst to determine if they're being deceptive or honest. It's telling them that there's a little bit of a problem here, and then it's sort of reinforcing mm. it. So, you know, it's explaining, actually, lie detection's not easy, and I can't take your credibility for granted, but you can make it easier for me to determine if you're being deceptive or honest. Now, that's really cueing our participants, whether they're truth tellers or liars, to the fact that we don't mm -hmm. know if they're being deceptive or honest. Now the next set of instructions is very much built upon that, what I call the disclosure credibility association component. It's essentially telling people what it is we're looking for. So we then tell our uh, interviewees that um, the reason for this is because lie detection techniques can become more accurate and more reliable the more information you provide. So it's really mm -hmm. encouraging them to say more. You know, remember, and we've just said you can make it easier for us to detect if you're being deceptive or honest. We're now pairing it with this instruction. We're saying, um, and this is because our lie detection techniques become more accurate and more reliable the more information you provide. Now, interview settings, um, any setting where a person might be nervous, uh, can have an impact on how much information they retain. So we just reinforce this again with another instruction. We tell them, okay. that is, if you provide a longer, more detailed statement, I'll be better able to classify you as either lying or telling the truth. Now, that's the crux of the AIM instructions. And the nice thing about them is whether you're telling the truth or lying, uh, people take on a different information management strategy. Truth tellers hear this and they think, right, okay, you don't know I'm telling the truth, but if I provide more information, you can detect me. You'll be able to see that I'm a truth teller. And that's great, because what we see is the truth tellers then provide more information. Liars, on the other hand, hear these instructions and they think, hmm, you can't tell if I'm lying or telling the truth. If I say more, you'll be able to detect my lie. And they're in almost a little bit of a situation where they have to decide what they want to do. Uh, usually mm. what, what liars will do is they'll try to say a little bit more if they can. Uh, we've just told them that this will make it easy for us to detect. And what we found is that actually as a result of this, they withhold information. They think, okay, I will say less information and you can't detect me. Now, the nice thing about this is truth tellers are saying more, liars are withholding more. So we have this nice asymmetric effect. Mm -hmm. We can see who's telling the truth and who's lying. 
based upon the amount of information that's provided. Now that's that's very much the crux of the AIM instructions, mm. and we've got one published study to date. Uh, it was it's been quite successful. Um, we've been able to differentiate truth tellers and liars based upon the instructions, and mm. we're working on some more research that hopefully will be coming out in the next couple of months. But it does seem like a promising set of uh, instructions. I mean, they're easy to implement. You know, you you can change the language ever so slightly to adapt them to different situations. And was it, um, did you have any false positives or false negatives in there? So by a false positive, I mean, <clears throat> did you identify a liar as a, as a, um, as a, did you incorrectly identify a liar as a truth teller? Or did you have any false negatives, which is where you incorrectly classified a truth teller as a liar? Was there any, did you have any of those in, in that study? Uh, so that's an interesting question. Um, and I guess in order to answer this, I'm going to have to give you a bit of an idea as to how we go about um, making these determinations. So yeah, okay. what I haven't yet done is I haven't taken the transcripts and have had them rated by you know, human raters to see what their views are. Instead, what we typically do uh, with lie detection research, particularly for verbal lie detection research, is we look at uh, a discriminant analysis. Now, this tells us, this gives us an idea of... Um, how likely it is for us to be able to detect truths and lies. And uh, what I've done is I've looked at total detail, so the types of detail provided by interviewees based upon reality monitoring criteria. Now, what we found in the control condition, so where there's no aim instructions, is that um, lie detection accuracy rates were 48%. Now, that's perfectly normal. Usually, lie detection's around the chance mark, so that's what we would expect to find. Now, when the AIM instructions were introduced, what we seen was that accuracy rates increased to 81%. So much, much higher when we use the AIM instructions. Now, what I will say is there has been one published study to date. Uh, it is a brand new technique. We are still uh, developing it. We are still testing it. Yeah, yeah. But it does look like it's going to be quite a useful and promising technique to use. Does that answer your question? It does, yes. And and I said in my introduction that there is no such thing as a as a Pinocchio's nose. Um, so, uh, the the idea that um, that the amount of detail, for example, given or the amount of information given, um, is going to get you a hundred percent accuracy or a hundred percent classification um, isn't going to work because it just it, it doesn't it wouldn't work in that way. And we can come on to uh, potential countermeasures and things later. That's another uh, as, uh, another area or aspect. I nearly said ass area, <laughs> another area or aspect that I wanted um, that I wanted to explore. Um, so you mentioned something you mentioned in there that the that the listener might not be familiar with is you mentioned reality reality monitoring criteria. I just think it might be useful um, just to say what that is, just so people understand a bit more about uh, when you say you're you're assessing these statements against reality monitoring criteria. What 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 is reality monitoring and what sort of things might you be looking for? Absolutely. Um, apologies, I probably should have started with. That. No, no, it's fine. Don't worry. So reality monitoring criteria is. Um, it's a set of criteria that's used uh, for memory-based research, but lie detection researchers have sort of adapted it and pulled it over to the lie detection field. And essentially, it's this idea that if you have a real experienced memory, you will have different you know, perceptual experiences of this. Now, what lie detection researchers are interested in is uh, very specific types of detail. 
So we're interested in uh, spatial detail. Now that's information about how a person moves through space. So for example, uh, if I'm going to explain to you how I get from my office uh, downstairs to the reception area, I might say, okay, so I, I walk through the door, through being an example of spatial detail. I turn left, mm -hmm. left being where I've turned through space, so left being another example. I walk towards the elevator, towards, again, being another spatial category. Now, these types of details are found uh, more predominantly in truthful statements because they have this real mm -hmm. memory. Whereas liars, although they, they'll provide some spatial information, they won't provide near enough the same level. So one of the other details we're quite interested in is temporal information. Uh, again, liars will, will provide a tiny bit of temporal information, but truth tellers are able to provide much more. Now, this isn't just reference to time, you know, it was 11 o'clock, uh, you know, when this podcast started, for example. It's, it's yeah. reference to temporal order. So um, if I give you an example of starting the podcast, I might say, well, first of all, first, give it you temporal context. This was the first thing we did. First of all, we had an introduction. Then, then an example of temporal uh, temporal information tell you, you know, what we done next. Uh, next, another useful example of temporal details. Again, truth mm -hmm. tellers add these types of details into their statements. Liars don't, and when they do, it's very few amounts. And then the other thing is perceptual information, and this is very much what the person's perceived. So it might be uh, what they've heard, what they've. Um, seen uh it might be uh you know anything that they have tasted it's very much perceptual experiences so uh, when i say when i give you the example of leaving the office and i said i walked through uh, the office door or i opened the office door the door is the thing that you see right so that's your perceptual mm -hmm. detail and what we find is with these combinations of detail if we put them together we call them total detail we find that truth-tellers are able to provide more total detail compared to liars. Uh, and th this is naturally what we find. So then when we use the AIM instructions, we find that truth-tellers uh, are saying even more than liars, and we can then detect these differences more easily. So that's when we think of our control condition that had 48% accuracy. That's quite normal. Uh, then we think with the AIM instructions, this was increased to 81% accuracy. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of uh, context for where total detail comes from, what reality monitoring is. Yeah, it really does. That's really useful. Thank you, Cody. So, and I was asking because I think it's it's important and useful for for the listener to hear, because um, the I think um, one of the things that that often happens is we um, and I, I say this for, for being an interviewer for a lot for. A, probably a bit longer than I would care to remember. It's really easy to to pay attention to the overall impression that somebody gives rather than being and rather than being able to simultaneously think about the overall impression somebody's giving and to be able to ascertain some of the details and the specifics that either are present or absent in um, in responses or answers that uh, that somebody's giving. So the identification of those those aspects in terms of the perceptual information the temporal information and the spatial information is is a really useful way to look at it so i i add um and i know this isn't from any research this is just what i add and, and some you may argue that this sits within the 
um, within the perceptual one. Um, but I would add in uh, cognitive and affective aspects as well. So when people are talking about what they were thinking or, or what they were feeling um, as these different things were happening or what other people might have been thinking or what other people might have been feeling um, uh, along the way as well, because those kind of details um, are more likely to be there if you've had the experience as opposed to if it's something that you're creating and, and fabricating and making up. Sure, sure. No, I, I can see why. Okay. And so if I think about taking the aim technique and, and applying it into the workplace then, um, is there a risk in the opening, you know, the, the opening framing that we give um where you talk about the illusion of transparency um, and the, I can't remember how you frame the second one where, you know, we're saying that, so we're saying it's hard to detect um, we can make it easier by. Is there a, is there a risk of um, offending or um, impacting the interviewee by outlining that at the outset? So let's say I was doing a, uh, a, a job a job interview maybe might be easier to do but if I was doing a <clears throat> yeah I suppose I'm just thinking sorry I'm not articulating my question very well but my pondering was would the would the framing um have a have an impact on the interviewee where they might go oh I can't believe you you already think I'm lying or would it kind of would it put any barriers up or put their guard up do you think yeah absolutely I mean uh, the first thing to, to point out is that the AIM instructions initially uh, were designed for more forensic interviews so that mm-hmm. there has been a, you know, a crime, so to speak, that's taken place. So, you, you know, you, you are going to have that slightly harsher language. Now, in, the, in terms of a recruitment setting, I think the AIM could be quite useful. It could be quite helpful because uh, recruitment interviews, they're not like everyday conversations. So, you know, people are going to be nervous. Um, well, they're very likely going to be nervous. And what that might mean is you might... I certainly was. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely the same. Uh, interviews, I'm quite nervous. Um, and what that can mean for employers is you might miss candidates that are really skilled, really useful for that job, but you know they're just too nervous to, to be forthcoming. What you might also find, you know, the flip side, and we think with more deceptive people... You might find that there's uh, candidates who are really exaggerating their skill set, and as a result of that, you might end up with a candidate that actually doesn't know how to do the job. That's where the AIM instructions could be quite useful for differentiating. Now, the AIM instructions as they are, you wouldn't use them in a uh, recruitment setting. They would need to be uh, slightly reworded. They would need a softer approach. Mm. Because, as you say, you don't want to get people's back up. You don't want people thinking, oh, but you don't trust me already. So they do need to be tailored. Um, and of course, they do need to be applied at the start of a recruitment interview before you ask your technical questions about the job. Now, this is something I'm really interested in, and actually, it is something I'm working on. So, hopefully, over the next uh, year or so, uh, we'll have more information mm. about how the aim can be introduced in recruitment settings. But I think it, it would be useful for differentiating those nervous candidates, but highly skilled candidates, versus those who might be exaggerating about their experience and skill set. Wonderful. Well, well, in that case, then we'll definitely have to get you back on the podcast um, once that research has been uh, once that research has been completed um, to find out what uh, yeah how how it went and, and the impact that it definitely. had. Definitely, that'd be really interesting. I look forward to it. Okay. Um, 
So I mentioned countermeasures earlier on. Earlier on, um, so countermeasures is a is a term that I've only ever heard used in two contexts. So one is in deception research, and the other one is in submarine warfare, um, when when uh, submarines are deploying countermeasures from the back of the boat. Um, so I, I should probably say what I mean by countermeasures. So countermeasures being then things that that liars may do, or techniques or strategies that liars may wield to um, uh, to to increase the likelihood that they're believed. So uh, if we go with some kind of classic examples that people may have seen in, in movies or otherwise, so I think it's in Ocean's 13, um, one of the characters has to do a polygraph. Um, and so what they do to countermeasure the polygraph is they put a drawing pin in their shoe. Um, and when the control questions are being asked, the individual has to, to push the drawing pin into their toe. Um, so that it raises their autonomic nervous system um, to raise their heart rate and perspiration and so on, so that when they're asked the um, uh, the, the deceitful questions, then it doesn't it doesn't show that their uh, autonomic nervous system is raised. Um, uh, so that would be an example of a of a countermeasure. So, is there is there something within AIM you think where countermeasures could be deployed and what might they be? So I think. Yes, if you're not aware of them, then there are countermeasures that liars can use. And I think what's what's important here is to take on board that the AIM instructions are designed to create this information management dilemma. Uh, but mm. what needs to be used in conjunction with this is, you know, the analysis. Uh, we need to be looking for the types of detail people are providing. And what's important is that we look at how people are answering the questions. So uh, if I ask you to tell me about your whereabouts yesterday between 3 and 5 o'clock, uh, I'm interested in just that particular information. Sometimes what liars do is, is they go off on a tangent. They provide uh, lots of irrelevant information. Now, this might make them look detailed. So they might say, uh, for example, oh, yesterday, you know, between three and five, gosh, I can't really remember. Hmm, let me think about that. And then they might go into uh, things like, Right, okay. Uh, I remember yesterday was a really sunny day. And this is important because last week there was such a nice heat wave. Now, I'm sounding detailed to you, but I'm starting to talk to you about a heat wave last week, which is totally irrelevant. It's, it's not mm. relevant to the information that, that you need. And I think that's something to be aware of, is when liars provide irrelevant information, because it is something that we can work with. Uh, we can look at the core information that's provided uh, in relation to that actual offence. Uh, and that, that's quite mm. useful. Um, another thing to be aware of, I guess, is that, you know, liars sometimes, they'll, they'll provide their information. They might repeat it for a second time. Again, this, this makes them look a little bit more detailed than what they actually are. So what I would say is that when you're, if you're going to use the AIM technique, think about the instructions and think about how you look for the type of detail people are providing. Is it relevant to the questions that you're asking? No, I like that a lot um, because it could be that I can give you lots of temporal or spatial or perceptual information, but if it's not to do with um, with the question you've asked me or the topic that you've asked me about or the example that you've asked me to discuss or the the, the time where where it was, then that can be interesting. Yeah, so if you were to ask in a, like in a recruitment interview, um, in your CV you mentioned that you did this particular thing, tell me what didn't work well for you in that and then um, 
it, yeah, you can look at it and then you get answers that aren't about that particular aspect or that particular thing, then you might get lots of temporal, spatial and perceptual information. But if it's not about the example or the occurrence that you're interested in, then yeah, that would be interesting. Absolutely. And what would be really, I guess, important for recruitment context is, is to be aware if you're relating something to their CV that they said that they can do, you know, if they're talking about a slightly different skill set that might be useful for the job, but, you know, they, they keep deflecting onto something else, I would try and pinpoint why that might be. You know, is it a case that they've mentioned in their CV the skill set that they just don't have? Hmm. And in the, in the research that you've run, is it a, um, is it like a single bite of the cherry? So what I mean by that is we give the aim instructions and then we say, tell me what happened in that room for example <clears throat> and then do they just have one is it just one kind of account or are you asking uh, probing questions or are you asking additional questions as well or is it a, is it a, is the is the interviewee having like a single kind of bite of the cherry as it were at the minute it's just one single free recall uh, yeah okay and, and that was very much so that we could assess the impact these instructions are having mm. of course for recruitment setting you know you are going to be asking lots of different questions. Uh, and I think the key is to put the aim instructions at the very beginning of the interview. Uh, now, what effect that's going to have and if it's going to have a long-term effect, you know, when it gets into three, four, maybe five or six questions later, are they still going to remember? Uh, we don't know yet. But that is something that I'm planning on exploring uh, this year. I'm hoping mm. that because the aim instructions put people into almost information management dilemma they have to pick their strategies initially i think it'll have a lasting effect throughout all of the questions uh, meaning that our truth tellers will be able to say more our liars won't uh, they'll withhold mm. and the nice thing about these instructions is they're so simple and so easy to introduce that if you come across you know a technical uh, job related question and the candidate isn't answering or, or maybe they're not being as detailed as you want them to be you can go back to the questions and you could say, you know, a little bit of a softer approach, but just remember that, you know, we're here to assess your skill set. We, we don't know your skill set. We only know the information that you provide. If you provide us with more information, we're going to be better able to assess um, how competent you are for the job. You know, that's off the top of my head. These instructions obviously need to be refined, but something like that's a nice yeah, soft yeah. way to reintroduce the instructions. And there's no reason that couldn't be done. No, I, I agree. And and it sounds, um, so the, the risk is that when I say this now, it sounds like we've planned it. So the um, the intro, the instructions that I give um, before any interview that um, that I run, especially if it's in a, in a recruitment context, um, is I want to be able to represent you the, in the best possible way against the other candidates, because that gives you the best chance of securing the role that you want. To do that, I need to know as much about you as possible. So I want you to tell me as much as you can, as much as you remember, without going too far. I don't want you to make anything up. But tell me everything that you can about your skill set, your experience, your background that you deem to be relevant for this role so that I can represent you in the best way. Um, what you may also notice is that I take lots of notes, and that's because... Um, I want to be able to represent you when comparing you with other candidates. So if there's a gap in between questions um, or there's times where I might be writing things down, that's the reason why. Again, to try and alleviate any 
nerves or concerns that people may have because what i what i tend to do is ask the question let the candidate answer and then write my notes down afterwards because that way i can analyze their behavior whilst they're answering the question because if i'm writing my notes while they're answering the question it's harder for me to pay attention to what they may be doing or what they may be saying or how they may be moving or the type of information they're using so um yeah i I, i'm with you it's the help me help me make it easy for you to get the job is the frame that i use to to wrap around it but also that helps me identify if they might be the wrong person for the job i just don't need to say that bit yeah (laughs) because no absolutely and it's a nice soft approach to it it's not going to get anyone's back up it's going to have your truth tellers thinking okay great you want to help me Uh, i want this job this is great i'm going to be forthcoming yeah definitely so are there any what other piece of pieces of advice would you give to the listeners then to help them be effective in in interviews or conversations where deception may play a part? I think um, that the best piece of advice that, that I can give people is to, to focus on looking for the truth. Uh, don't get fixated on trying to detect a deceit. Focus on trying to elicit more information. The more information you can get, the easier it's going to be for you to make that judgment. Uh, and, and I think if we're framing ourselves in the way that we're going to look for truthful behaviours, I think we're going to be far better at detecting deceptions as a consequence of that. I like that advice. That's good advice. Thank you. <laughs> I think other bits we talked about already. So you said about putting people at ease. I think that's that's really important. Um um, framing and, and positioning what you might be doing um, and, and why you're doing it and thinking about that clearly before you go in. I think that's um, that's really important. And I like the way that you kind of adapted the, the initial framing to um, to something that's a bit softer where it doesn't have that forensic or, uh, or criminal aspect um, to it. I like that. Um, okay. So if I start to bring us together then and, and, and close the the podcast um off is there are there any kind of myths or misconceptions that you would like to address or you would like to put to bed any myths or misconceptions oh gosh this could be a podcast on its own (laughs) oh okay (laughs) so so i think lie detection is difficult and i'm not sure how much people realize that this is a difficult uh area you know as, as you said rightfully there is no pinocchio's nose and that's because detecting deception is complex. Sometimes people might decide to, I don't know, embed their lie within a truthful memory. Now that makes it really hard for us mm-hmm. to detect. Other times people might provide limited information because they're nervous or because, you know, they don't want to bore the person who's listening to them. It's not because they're, they're trying to be difficult. They just don't know the level of detail required. Um, and I said to you about lie detection being quite complex quite difficult just to give you an idea of the research you know research tells us that uh, our ability to detect deception is around about 54 percent you know it's around the chance level we're not very good at it at the moment now the field is of course progressing but we're just not there yet to give you some Mm -hmm. context to that uh, there's a meta-analysis by DePaulo and colleagues in 2003 and this is a really important paper for uh, all lie detection experts Now, what they found is uh, they examined 50 different cues, and they found that only 14 of these cues in their meta-analysis were statistically related to deception. That's 28%. That's really low. 
but it gives you some idea of where the lie detection field is at, or at least where it was in 2003. Since then, we've tried to create tools, new tools, new techniques that proactively elicit differences between truth tellers and liars, you know, to try and make this difference a little bit bigger. Uh, But my advice would be, there isn't one single cue. Focus on a cluster of cues. Look at a range of them. Don't just look at one thing. And do be aware of the limitations of the field. Yeah, uh, that's good. I like that. That's some really good advice. Okay. Um, so is there anyone um, or, or is there someone that you would recommend that we seek out to get on the podcast as a guest, do you think? Oh, gosh. There are a lot of interesting lie detection researchers. Now, for me, uh, if I had to pick one, I would recommend Adam Harvey, who is a social psychologist who founded the stability bias. Now, stability bias is really the idea that Uh, memory decays over time, and because of this, uh, truth-tellers and liars will behave differently. That's the key point. Truth-tellers and liars' memories, their verbal reports will be different. I think this is really important for anyone that's interested in learning about deception because it impacts most lie detection research. You see, most of the research we conduct is essentially immediately after an offence. Right? I will send someone off, they'll steal the phone, they'll come back, they'll be interviewed about it. But actually what Harvey and colleagues in their 2017 paper found was that after a delay, uh, the amount of information changes. Truth-tellers' memory decays over time, so they provide less information. Whereas liars, they just don't consider this. So if you ask a liar about an offence immediately, or you ask them about an offence, say, over the course of what should have been three weeks, they provide similar levels of information. And this impacts lie detection research and this impacts um, some of these tools and techniques that you might read about wonderful thank you uh, and where where's adam based uh, yes uh, university of west of england bristol ue bristol ah, the university that okay. um i will be that i'm now joining I was say where, where you're where you're heading off to okay so can you put, a, put in a kind word for me please cody i will put right. you both in touch um, and yeah that'd be lovely please that'd be fantastic thank you um, and are there any books, videos, or talks that you would recommend um, for someone to go and look at if they wanted to find out more, whether that be around the aim technique in particular or, or more generally around interviewing and or deception? Is there anything you would say, yeah, you know what, these are really good places to go? Absolutely. So I think the aim technique, we've got one published paper so far. Uh, that's a really good starting point for giving you an idea of what the aim technique's all about. And um, Phil, I'll give you the reference for this uh, so that interested listeners can find it that'd be fantastic thank you yeah i'll put that in the show notes and in terms of a book the most useful book that that i found for learning about lie detection was by professor albert fry in 2008 he published a book and it's called uh, detecting lies and deceit pitfalls and opportunities and it's a really good starting point it's a nice easy read yeah what i like about that book is it's um is the the chapters are you can read it front to back like you would do a, 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 a typical traditional book if you want to. But also all those, all the chapters stand alone as individual reads. So if you're particularly interested in, for example, body language, you can go read the body language chapter. Or if you're interested in criteria-based content analysis, then you can go and read the, the chapter on CBCA. So yeah, I, I agree. That's a very well-thumbed book on my bookshelf. Absolutely. It's a good choice. 
Okay. And if people wanted to find out more then, Cody, if they wanted to get in touch with you to, to find out more or to um, kind of pick up a conversation, how would you like them to do that? Um, they can either reach out via social media or they can contact me on my university email address, which is um, cody.porter at uwe.ac.uk. I'm more than happy to chat, to answer any questions. Wonderful. And is it, is it okay if I put links to both your Twitter, LinkedIn and um, your email in the show notes? Would that yeah, be okay? absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you, Cody. So the only thing I have then to do is ask my final wrap up question, which is there's something else that you're thinking, feeling or want to say? Um, no, Phil, this has been a fantastic uh, experience. So thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a really interesting uh, chat. It's been really good to talk to someone else that's interested in lie detection. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on. Um, when I read your uh, when I read your paper, I thought, you know what, there's so m- the applicability of this is is broad. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see where your research goes, and delighted that you came on um, to join me. So no, thank you very much. So thank I should say thank you, Cody Porter, for coming on to the Emotion at Work podcast. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. And if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.